of uh, sermons on the Trinity this summer. We're considering how God's uh, triune nature, not just the fact that we worship one God, but the fact that he is one God in three persons, um, is the foundation for all of our, uh, well, everything. It's the foundation for all of reality. It's the foundation for everything, especially in the Christian life. It changes everything uh, when you think about God this way. Uh, we are monotheists, right? We, we believe that there is only one true God. Um, and when it comes to the Trinity, we, the, the way that we articulate this is that there's, there's one being, there's one substance, there's one essence. Um, kind of the fancy word for being is ontology, so if you'll allow me to just make up a word, uh, we think um, that God is monontological. <laughs> um, I'm pretty sure that that's not, I, I googled that, it's not a word, but uh, it's fun, try to say it, monontological. Um, <clears throat> yet this one God, this one being, is tripersonal, right? Um, existing always as Father, Son, and Spirit, equal in substance, equal in power, uh, equal in glory, one God, yet um, each person relating to the others in distinct ways. Um, and so, um, so God's unity, or God's oneness, on the one hand, and God's uh, relationality of persons, the threeness of God, uh, are equally ultimate, so that you cannot emphasize one over the other, um, but you've got to take them both together or else you've got some heresy or another. So we're not going to go into uh, all the biblical evidence for believing this. Um, sorry that I, I didn't do that last week, not going to do it this week, probably not going to do it through the series, why we actually believe God is triune. We'll look at plenty of texts that indicate that, <clears throat> but... Um, there is a, uh, an insert in your bulletin this week. Um, if you want to do some study on your own, it, uh, I've called it a sampling of biblical data showing that God is triune. He's one God in three persons. And the, the list itself is from Ralph Smith's um, Trinity and Reality. It's a uh, book. I haven't read it, but I've heard uh, that it's very good. Um, and that... Um, he starts off his book with this list, things like there is one God and a bunch of reasons why we believe that from the scripture. The Father is God, the Son is God, the Spirit is God. Uh, we see them together but distinct. And so uh, go through that list if you're um, looking to be further persuaded of the fact that the Trinity is a biblical reality. <clears throat> um, last week, we looked at 1 John we heard the apostles' exhortation to us um, to abide in the Trinity for the sake of our life, right? That's where life is, um, is abiding in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And this week, we'll take a look at what Paul has to say um, about our salvation, which is our coming to know the Trinity for intimate personal relationship, uh, our being reconciled to the triune God by the triune God, um, so basically this week we're asking the question, um, how does God save us? Got to ask some auxiliary questions in order to get to that. How does God save us? Uh, but we're answering in some small degree anyway with God saves us by being the Trinity for us. Um, so I'll explain what I mean by that, but uh, let's pray and then we'll read from Ephesians 1. <clears throat> Father, we're thankful for... Uh, the word that your spirit inspired the prophets and apostles to write 
so that we have a record of the gospel of your Son, who is our Savior. We pray that you would reveal yourself to us more clearly, that we would see you and know you better than we have seen you and known you before, and that you would leave us uh, not unchanged, but that you would transform us through this, um, this reading and this preaching um, into the likeness of your Son, who uh, is our Savior, who uh, laid down his life for us to bring us to you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. And in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. <clears throat> so, um, I'm not sure you could read that in a way that does justice to it. <laughs> um, the Bible translation that we went from there, the English Standard Version, didn't uh, show it, and I'm not sure really if, if any um, English translation does, but that's all one sentence, right? We get a few sentences, we even get a paragraph break, but um, that's just, that's, that's an essay in a single run-on sentence. Uh, in the original Greek, 202 words of glory and destiny, <laughs> right? Um, it's, it's huge. Uh, and so depending on your perspective, um, as one commentator said, it's the most monstrous sentence conglomeration that he's ever read in the Greek language. Uh, or, as another said, one is struck by the fullness of its words, the liturgical majesty, and its perceptible rhythm from beginning to end. And so I'm going to actually side with that guy, uh, the latter, and say that it is one of the most incredible sentences ever written in any language, uh, even in all of the inspired scriptures. It's one of the most incredible sentences that uh, could be composed. Um, there's no way that we can even mention one significant thing about each phrase in this passage, let alone explore all the connections and the structure, um, it was all I could do even to try to be selective about what to study. I couldn't even uh, get through all the commentaries. I couldn't even get through one commentary on the whole passage. <laughs> um, there's so much in it. So the best that I can uh, hope to do is summarize it, and unfortunately that means we're going to actually skip a lot. Uh, but Fred Sanders, who wrote um, the Deep Things of God, which is uh, on the recommended reading list for this series, 
he also um, preached a sermon on this passage uh, about six weeks ago. <clears throat> he makes a good point. He says that this passage is deliberately overwhelming. That is uh, deliberately overwhelming. We've, we've all got preconceptions about who God is, about what salvation is, and those preconceptions don't just need tweaking here or there. Like, we got it mostly right. We just kind of need to be reshaping here or there. Um, but, but our preconceptions need complete reordering. Uh, they need to be dismantled and remade in light of God's uh, revelation. It is exactly like a collapsing star that goes supernova and then sucks everything back into a black hole. Right? It's just like that. <laughs> um, God basically has to explode everything that we know about him. He has to blow our minds, in a sense, right? He has to explode everything that we know about him, and then with this incomprehensible gravity, this inescapable gravity, capture us, attract us, draw us in to his inexhaustible glory, press us down deeper and deeper into him in a way that changes us, that reorders our very nature, right? That's what black holes do. Um, of course, black holes will crush you to death, whereas pressing, pressing deeper into the knowledge of God um, brings you life, right? So no analogy is perfect, is what I've been telling you. Um, <clears throat> but that's what this text is like. Um, truth about the Trinity and salvation is on a level of uh, altering reality. Right? Altering reality. And here is why this is critical, this uh, reality-altering revelation of God it's exactly what we need most. Um, apart from his making himself known through salvation and for our salvation, we would have absolutely no hope whatsoever in knowing him as he truly is. No hope at all. Knowing God as he truly is. Apart from his gracious self-revelation, it would be impossible even to understand God as, as being triune. Um, to say nothing of actually bridging the relational gap between us, we wouldn't even know anything about him, let alone be reconciled to him, unless he made it known. Uh, the conception of God as one God in three persons makes no sense to us. It's completely foreign to us. We have no categories for comprehend comprehending this. Um, and I want to talk about why, because it is relevant to our salvation. You'll see uh, we can't comprehend God to have a relationship with him as he is, triune, uh, because of our sin. Um, it's, it's not just that our minds are so limited that we can't comprehend the infinite. Uh, that's true, of course, but it's because our nature, it's in fact because all of reality has been distorted by sin so much that we are bound to conceive of God wrongly. We are, we are absolutely bound to conceive of God wrongly, to not uh, know him as he truly is. Here's what I'm talking about. God is holy, right? Scriptures say that all over the place. If you've been a Christian, you know God is holy. What does that mean? It doesn't just mean God is perfect. It doesn't just mean God is perfectly virtuous, right? Some abstract moral uh, purity. The root concept behind holiness is distinctness. Is being different, being set apart. Right? 
So to say that God is holy is to say that God is utterly distinct from us. And this is chiefly true. The main way in which he is distinct from us is the fact that he is love. He is love. God is love because he is father and son loving each other in the spirit. Make sense? Good. Glad to clear something up for you. Anyway, the Father loves the Son, the Son loves the Father, and the love that they share, the fellowship between them, the mutual love, the, the giving of themselves, is the Spirit. Um, somebody feel free to go out and call the loony bin if you need to. <laughs> right? I mean, this is crazy. Nope. We can't comprehend this. The Father loves the Son, the Son loves the Father, and the love that they share, the giving of themselves, is the Spirit. Um, God is persons who love one another with divine love. Right? So God is love. So in himself, in the one being that is God, God is entirely self-giving and other-oriented in himself. Um, and he created us in his image. He created us to be like him, to be in relationships of love with him and with each other. And that's how things are supposed to be. That's the divine intent. And that's the divine goal for all of reality, especially uh, humanity. Right? But for some reason, we weren't thrilled with God or uh, his ideas and plans for us. And, uh, and instead of um, remaining in love with him, instead we chose self-love and we broke ourselves and we broke the whole world. And so now we are proud and we're self-centered, we're egotistical, we're individualistic beings who only look out for number one, who think that the solution to every problem is boosting our self-esteem. Who cannot for the life of us imagine what divine love actually is. And therefore cannot conceive of the triune God as he truly is. We're curved inwards on ourselves. The fancy Latin theological phrase that's been used for centuries is in curvatus in se. We are, that's, the, that's the substance, that's the nature of our sin. We are curved inward on ourselves with such a gravitational pull that we cannot escape. We cannot escape self-fixation. We cannot escape self-love and therefore cannot even understand what it would be like otherwise. For people like us, um, therefore, true community is an impossibility. We can pretend to have true community. We can even deceive ourselves into thinking we've got it. Uh, but basically end up um, just loving ourselves, ultimately at the end of the day, using others. We'll talk more about that uh, next week. And we can even say, and we can perhaps even uh, say we instinctively know that, um, that true love, that real selflessness, is an ideal to strive for. That's the way it ought to be. We might be able to say that, but we don't know it experientially. Um, our best philosophers can't figure out a way to get to real altruism, real selflessness, 
Our best philosophers cannot figure out a way to do it. Even the most apparently selfless acts ultimately boil down to self-love, selfishness, um, or at least tainted by self-love. So apart from grace, it's literally impossible for us to know the God who is love because we just don't know what that is. And we can't have a relationship with him if we don't know him. Michael Reeves, who wrote the, the book Delighting in the Trinity, has a, a video online. Uh, he's talking about how to, how to do evangelism, and we'll talk about this more in a few weeks, but um, how to do evangelism in light of the Trinity. But he says in that video, when I ask atheists, these people who don't believe in God, when I ask atheists to describe the God that they don't believe in, they describe Satan rather than a Trinity. Because it is our nature as sinners to love ourselves above all, it is natural for us to conceive of a God who is like us, right? to, to recraft God after our image. If I'm the highest thing in my own affections, um, even if, as Joe Pope says, I may not be much, but I'm all I think about, right? um, if I'm the highest thing in my own affections, if I'm the best thing I know, then any God I imagine will necessarily look like me. Maybe he'll be bigger. Maybe he'll be stronger. Um, maybe he's got the virtues that we think we see in ourselves or that we'd like to see in ourselves, but more than we have in ourselves, right? Um, but if we've crafted a single deity, at the end of the day, if we're still monotheists, just imagining God after our own image, um, <clears throat> this God will also be monopersonal necessarily. And that means intrinsically in himself, the God that we create after our own image, intrinsically is non-relational. Right? He's non-loving in himself. He doesn't love the other. He's self-loving. He's self-absorbed. And that describes the devil, not the Trinity. Right? Um, so if we're going to know God as he truly is, a triune God of love, then he's going to have to turn the world upside down. Really, it's turning the world right side up to make himself known to us. Um, and he can't just write something down and tell us, just communicate something verbally or visually. He can't, he can't just do that. It still won't make sense. He's got to blow all our categories, right? He's got to reorder all of our affections. He's got to alter our realities. He's got to change us on a fundamental level, from the inside out, he's got to change everything because we're not right in the head. We're not right in our hearts. We are dead to him. We need new life in us. We need the self-love to be broken and replaced with true love for God. We need new, new hearts. Right. Um, Robert Lethem says that uh, he's got a book called The Holy Trinity. Um, says that the whole tenor of fallen man is the pursuit of self-interest, but God actively pursues the interests of the other. And that's good news, right? It's, it's good news that God is who he is. Because it means that even though we have hopelessly distorted his image in us by our self-love, we haven't actually distorted him. We haven't actually distorted who he is. We haven't stopped him from being love. And he's coming after us. Um, C.S. Lewis uh, is talking about um, 
imagined gods of our preference versus the, the one true real God. He says this, an impersonal God, well and good. A subjective God of beauty, truth, and goodness inside our own heads, better still. A formless life force surging through us, a vast power which we can tap best of all. But God himself, alive, pulling at the other end of the cord, perhaps approaching at infinite speed, the hunter, king, husband, that is quite another matter. And, uh, and that supremely other-oriented lover, that fierce pursuer has burst into this world and he's brought all of heaven's blessings along with him. And that's what our text is about. <clears throat> Verse 3, blessed be, this is praise, this is uh, eulogy, which is not just to be applied to people at their funerals. Uh, it's a good word, right? A good word about somebody. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Verse 3 is the title verse. It's kind of the topic sentence, um, the synopsis of our text. And it is unrestrained praise. It's bubbling forth of the triune God. It's a Trinitarian verse that reflects not just who God is, but how God is. He's blessed. And, uh, and what God is, he's a blessing to us. Right? It's Trinitarian twice over in this uh, passage. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus... Christ, which we said last week means the Spirit-anointed one, who, Father, has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing, every blessing that pertains to the Spirit, that belongs to the Spirit, every blessing of the Spirit. Blessed be the Trinity who has, as the Trinity, blessed us. And the rest of the passage expounds how the Trinity has blessed us by being the Trinity for us not remaining detached or remote, but pursuing us at uh, perhaps infinite speed approaching, breaking into our world. The Father, it says in verse 4, <clears throat> chose us before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless in him. That in itself could capture our attention for the rest of our lives. Um, our Old Testament reading, the first two verses from Psalm 90, are a reflection that Moses has <clears throat> on uh, this kind of concept. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting you are God. That God is our dwelling place. Um, it's Moses' meditation on God as our dwelling place from eternity. Susanna Wesley, who's the mother of um, John and Charles Wesley, two very famous and influential Christians in history, says this. This was a quote provided in the beginning of the bulletin for you. <clears throat> God is being itself, and as such, must necessarily be infinitely happy in the glorious perfections of his nature from everlasting to everlasting. So that's just who God is because he's a triune God. He's never changed. He's always been perfect from everlasting to everlasting, and that perfection uh, has been a delighted one. 
And as he did not create, so neither did he redeem because he needed us. But he loved us because he loved us. Put together God's eternity, his eternal perfection, with the fact that he loved us because he loved us. God is eternal in in his perfection. If you back up before the beginning of time itself, you'll know that there was never a time when he didn't know everything that he would ever do. There was never a moment when God had this kind of light bulb go off and say, aha, and have this idea to create all this stuff and make you and redeem you. There was never a time before the Father loved his people. He has always planned to bring his people into the blessed communion of the Trinity to make us holy like him. To make us to love like he loves. Verses uh, 4 and 5 says, in love, he, the Father, predestined us. He decided beforehand for adoption as sons through his only begotten Son. Right? Because he loved us, he decided that we would relate to him in the very same way that the second person of the Trinity relates to him. And this is according to his will. And it's to the praise of his glorious grace. It's accomplished for us in Christ. That phrase, either in Christ or in him or in whom, um, shows up 11 times in, in this passage. It's accomplished for us in Christ, whom the Father sent to be our Savior, so that we'd have redemption through his blood, according to the riches of his grace. So because God is triune, Because God is love, because God is self-giving in himself, he gave himself in the person of his son for us. The son uh, added a human nature to himself. He didn't change his own nature. He didn't stop being divine. He um, has been, always will be, the second person of the Trinity, fully divine. The son added to himself a second nature, took on all of humanity's nature in himself, a real mind, a real soul, a real body. And he went to the cross for us on our behalf so that he could redeem us through his death, through his blood. Our sins, our rebellion, it deserves death in God's sight and we need forgiveness, we need atonement. Maybe that seems strange for a God of love to have wrath for sin like this. Miroslav Volf says, God isn't wrathful in spite of being love. These are not two conflicting qualities that he has in himself. He isn't wrathful in spite of being love. Wolf says, God is wrathful because God is love. A God who is love, who made us for relationships of mutual love, when we rebuff him, when we cut ourselves off from him, when we revolt against his own image in us and destroy ourselves in the process, and destroy everything that he's made in the process, He gets angry like a lover who has the right to be angry at such betrayal. But rather than leave us to our self-destructive self-love, God the Son absorbed all of God the Father's anger over our sin, and he died on the cross for us. God didn't have to do any of this, but he did because he's got heaping treasures of grace, riches of mercy, And that's who he is. 
Irenaeus, um, about the year 180, uh, wrote a letter called Against Heresies, and he says, because of his measureless love, he became what we are in order to enable us to become what he is, adopted as sons and daughters in the Son, right? in Christ, in the Spirit, anointed Son of God, we are saved, we are adopted. And he talks about this, uh, Jesus himself talks about it in John 14. He says to his disciples who um, at this point of greatest distress, surely in the history of their lives, this night when Jesus is uh, going to be betrayed and he's going to be taken away from them, he's going to be killed and they're going to be thrown into confusion. Uh, Jesus spends a lot of time talking about the Trinity. He says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And because I live, you also will live. I will not leave you as orphans. You'll be adopted through me because I'm coming to you. And because I live, you also will live. And um, J.I. Packer says, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he thinks of the thought of being God's child. If by faith you are in Christ Jesus, the Son of God, then sonship with regard to God, the Father, is your fundamental identity. It's your destiny. It's true of you already. That's who you are in a way that changes everything in your life. Sonship with regard to God, the Father. More, um, more on the ways that this changes your life later in the series. And in the Son's place, we inherit the Father himself. That's what it says in verse 11. All the Father has is given to the Son. The Father gives himself to the Son. On a crazy deep level, that means the Spirit. <laughs> the Father gives himself to the Son in love, and that is the Spirit. When the Father gives himself to the Son, he gives the Spirit, so the Spirit is God's love which is why he's usually called the Holy Spirit. He's utterly distinct from anything that we know because he is love. And the Spirit is God-given. He's God-given, which is the Son's inheritance, which by the riches of, riches of God's grace is our inheritance. Right? So in the Son, through the Spirit, we have the Father. We don't see him now. We're not face-to-face -face with him even though it's said of us later in Ephesians in chapter 2, God raised us up with Christ and seated us, past tense, with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Even though that's true of us, we are spiritually, that is, through the Spirit, with the Father already and, um, and not yet. Um, and until all things are united is the mystery of God's will, until all things are united and summed up in the Son, in Christ, we have the Holy Spirit. We have the Spirit of God's love, as it says in verse 13 and 14, the seal, the promise, the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. So in this gospel, this good news, the Trinity is for us in our salvation. The Father is for us as 
a good father is, uh, setting his love upon us, no matter who we are, choosing us in spite of who we are, sending his son and his spirit. The son is given for us instead of us in our place so that we might have his place in the relationships of the Trinity and the spirit is the love of God given to us, put into our hearts, the fellowship of the Father granted in the Son, the guarantee of our inheritance of God, of divine eternal love. It's crazy stuff. Paul summarizes this a little bit more succinctly in another place. In Galatians 4, he says, When the fullness of time had come, God the Father sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent his spirit, the spirit of his son, into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So no longer self-absorbed, no longer self-fixated, God-fixated, because the spirit of God, the spirit of God's son, is in us, and, and we become sons of God, fixated on the Father. Fred Sanders says that the good news of the gospel is that God has opened up the dynamics of his triune life and has given us a share in that fellowship. That's how you're saved. That's what you're saved for. Right? God has turned the world upside down to make himself known to you, to have a relationship with you. Jesus says that's what eternal life is. That's Christian salvation. It comes from the Trinity. It's shaped by the Trinity. It brings you into unity with the Trinity. And that's the purpose for which you were created and redeemed. Thomas Aquinas, again, it could be kind of the theme uh, for this series. The purpose and fruit of our whole life is the knowledge of the Trinity in unity. As we're in union with the Trinity, knowing the Trinity is the knowledge, it's, the, it's the purpose and fruit of our whole life. So if you want something with substance, if you want something with profound meaning, if you want the divine truth, if you want holy love, if you want freedom from self-love, if you want the joy of Christ himself that sustains you, if you want something that lasts forever, then you want the Trinity, you want his salvation. You want Christian salvation. It's the only way to know God, and you can trust that uh, it's all right there for you by the riches of his grace, to the praise of his glorious grace. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we pray with Augustine, the house of my soul is too small to receive thee. Let it be enlarged by thee. It is all in ruins. Do thou repair it. And we pray with Moses, satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Amen.